to a place we hadn't been before, Florida. Beautiful. Love hanging out with, with her brother and wife and children and everybody. It was great. Even Jeannie come down and crashed the party. Amen. We're so glad to have Jennifer in service today. We love you. And uh, I told her I'm so amazed, you know, broke back, broke ankle, and just all kind of challenges. And she's, uh, I was so surprised to see that text this morning she was coming. And I, and I knew she, what she's doing is just punching that devil in the face and saying, I'm going anyway. And we've been missing her, praying for her, and I want to keep doing that. Maybe us, the elders and all, can we pray with her at the end of the service today? Y'all meet me over there. We won't make you come here. We'll go there. And we want to lay hands and pray and believe God for a quick, quick recovery. Amen? All right. Well, what y'all want to do today? <laughs> Amen. Uh, Apostle Callaway did an awesome job last Sunday, didn't he? Always. And I told him that I was just too blame hot for putting that jacket on this morning. I stood in the closet and tried it, and I said, I ain't doing it. I rebuked it. <laughs> Today I want to talk to you. Uh, I hope this comes out right. Sometimes I have it, it real good in my heart and in my head. But, and, of course, this is Grace Point, where grace is the point. And I, and I want to talk to you about what it really means to live under grace and particularly uh, in, in, a, in an area that may initially sound a little strange to you. Paul, the apostle, used this term twice in the New Testament, Romans 6, verses 14 and 15. And he actually said, uh, sin shall not have dominion over you. And the reason sin doesn't have dominion over you is not because you try hard or anything like that is because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. What does it mean to live under grace? What does he mean by that expression? And then next verse, he says, what then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And of course, he answers his own question and says, certainly not. And Paul preached grace so radically that he got accused of uh, telling people to sin more so that grace could abound, which is uh, silly. And, of course, that's not what Paul was telling people to do. Nowhere there is no verse that Paul tells people to sin more. Uh, and, but if you preach grace radically the way that the Bible preaches grace, declares grace, in other words, if you preach it like Paul preached it, you're going to be accused of the same thing that Paul was accused of. And so I'm in that family, and I wear that, that stigma proudly because I have been accused of telling people that grace is not a big deal or, you know, uh, you know, I've never told anybody to go sin. In fact, a lot of times I just do that on this reason. A lot of times, many times, I don't do it out of, you know, every single time, but at the end of the service when I'm dismissing you, I'll say, go and sin no more. The reason I say that is because Jesus said that. But who did Jesus say that to? He, he said that to a woman in John 8 that was called in the very act, it says, of adultery. How many knows you can't do adultery by yourself? Nobody ever talks about where's the dude at, you know? But I'll save that sermon for another time. But, uh, but Jesus never mentions the woman's sin. He didn't say you shouldn't do that. You know, he, he didn't chide her. He, Jesus never did that to anybody. And he just simply looks, you know, they were there with the, with the law, and uh, they wanted to stone her to death, which was the punishment for adultery under the law. There was not many repeat offenders, Right? 
And so uh, Jesus says, you know, you that are, have, you know, have no sin in your life, you, th- you throw the first stone. And of course, we know the story. They, they all dropped the stones and left out of there. And Jesus simply says to the woman who is bowing down, waiting for her execution, he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, Lord, I have none. And she looked up. She saw there was no one there. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee. Uh, that's an amazing thing. That Jesus, the word condemnation is the same word in Greek for punishment. Uh, there, there now, Paul said in Romans, there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. I preached one time years ago a sermon that really gets you a lot of stuff off the that uh, said, you know, what if we were unpunishable? As far as God punishing us, we are unpunishable. There is no punishment. God's not going to punish uh, people. Uh, you, you want them to be punished, particularly if they've wronged you. But, but you don't want to be punished yourself. Uh, the punishment, the condemnation, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And he did say go and sin no more because Jesus knew that the power to overcome a lifestyle of living in sin is the free gift of grace, which is no condemnation. And that's the power that you live by. You know, people that, you know, and I grew up under a church culture where in Pentecostalism that we were in, and I don't mean that as a despairing thing or despairing people that identify with that today. I'm simply saying that I grew up in a very legalistic where preachers called out sin, named it, you know, and preached hard against it. And when I first started preaching, I fell right into that same uh, pattern. And, and, you know, and, and there's a lot of people that likes that. And every week I see on Facebook, and social media where people are saying, what we need today is preachers that are not soft on sin, preachers that will call sin of what it is and preach hell hot and all this, all this garbage. And, and I want to go under there, uh, you know, and, and, and boy, when I retire from pastoring where I don't have to maintain my composure, I'm, I'm going to be rough because I'm, I'm just going to comment. <laughs> but... but it's just ridiculous because if that would if that will work, it would have worked and it didn't. And the Bible says it doesn't. And in fact, the Bible says that that uh, the law Romans five and twenty the, the law God never gave the law so people would live by it. He God never expected man to be able to live by the law. The law was given in, so that the offense or sin may abound. That's what it says in Romans 5.20. But it says where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. The, the Amplified says grace superabounded. And that's the proper Greek definition. The word abounded there, where, where, where sin abounds, the word abound means a Greek uh, determination that, that can be numbered, it can be counted. The, the next word that the Bible uses where they translate it uh, abounded much more, superabounded, is something that cannot be numbered. It, 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 can, it cannot be assigned a number. And so where, where there is sin, grace always overrides that. And, and the law entered that sin may abound. So when you, when you see sin and you, 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 you preach against it, or when you try to use that even in how you deal with your kids or how you deal with family, when you point it out and point out the thou shalt nots and thou shalt, and you start quoting law, all you're doing is strengthening sin in their hearts. 
And that's what the Bible says. What this means is the more you preach the law, the more sin will abound. So if you want sin to abound, then just preach the law and point out sin and yell about sin and name it. And all you're going to do is have a room full of strengthened uh, rebellious sinners. Because that's not the antidote to, to sin is Jesus, who is grace. And God didn't send the wrong medicine for the wrong disease. And so when you, when you see sin and you respond to it by, by throwing the law on it, what you're doing is actually strengthening sin. You know what it's like? It's like trying to put out a fire with a bucket of gas. So enjoy yourself because you're not going to make it better. And so when, when, when Paul said, you know, where sin abounded, grace abounded more, Paul is saying that sin don't stop God's grace from flowing. It doesn't stop God's grace, but actually God's grace will stop sin. It's, the Bible says the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So if you're sitting under grace, you're not being taught that sin's not a big deal. Jesus got accused of being soft on sin, and just in what I've already mentioned, how he dealt with the woman in John 8. They said he's soft on sin. He doesn't care. He said sin's not a big deal. God never puts that posture forward. Sin's such a big deal that God came, right? And so what God does, God's grace don't abandon you. Uh, when you sin, and because God, God, him, God doesn't do abandonment. He, he said, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And that's not just for the Christians. Did you hear me? That's not just for Christians. And I say this stuff because I'm trying to shock the religion out of you, but God's not a Christian. And Jesus didn't come to make people Christians. Jesus didn't leave heaven, come to earth to start a new religion. Now, I'm not saying I'm against Christianity. But, but I'm not here to make Christians. Because that word means so many different things, depending on what nation you're standing in, who you're talking to, what it means. Now, if, it mean, if you say it, it means to be like Christ, then I'm on board for that. But if you say it, it means to be a Baptist or a Methodist, which I'm not against those two people. So don't save the emails. I'm not against your, your deal as long as you're not foolish enough to think that you and your group have got God boxed in y'all's box and he don't mess with nobody else but y'all. Then that's dumb as dirt. It's just ridiculous. The Bible says in Titus 2 and 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to how many men? How many? Did that mean lost men, saved men, Christian men, non-Christian men, woe men, women, right? Can you experience God's grace outside of Christian baptism? Thank you. I just read you the verse that said God's grace hath, not willed if they pray the prayer. The grace of God that brings salvation has already passed tense, appeared to all men. See, this is what the Christians found out when they left Europe and they came to America, to the First Nations people, uh, to Christianize them, to bring the gospel to these heathens, they were called, these savages. Um, I probably lean a little bit with sympathy towards that plight because of my great-grandmother who was full-blooded Cherokee 
Indian, Grandma Hutto. And uh, so we have that, at least to a measure, in my family genealogy, in our family tree. And, 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 I'm, and I'm glad for that. Uh, we were down at the beach the other day, and I put my arm up by Jill's, you know, and I said, we're a mixed-race couple. You realize that, don't you? <laughs> and if you want to see after service, I'll put my arm, she'll put her arm. We're not of the same color. We're different colors. And it ain't, it ain't even close. We're different colors. And, and it kind of makes her mad because I, I tan easily and, and I, I'm, more, I red, I'm more red. You know, I guess, I guess, I mean, whatever. But it don't take me long in the sun to, to, for that to happen. And I do that to her a lot. I've done that a lot, you know, and she gets aggravated. Because she's more protective now. She don't, she don't want to get it. If she gets in the sun, she's under something. She's wearing a hat or she's under the umbrella. Because she's battled some skin cancers. And so she just don't, she don't mess around with it. And, uh, which is safe, you know. And then me and Jeannie and everybody, we out here just baking like a potato, you know. <laughs> ah, sunscreen, that's for wimps. We don't need that stuff, you know. And, uh, but I kind of joke. But, we, but seriously, we're not the same color because there's different you know, different things in the, in the gene pool, as they say. But what, what they found out, particularly like John, John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley, of course, we, when we hear his name, we think of the Methodist, in which he is the father of that, that, that became, at some point, Methodist. But Methodists come from Methodism. And so there's a little history, uh, history about that that's, that's, that's important because when John Wesley came, he too came to America with the ideology that the, I'm coming to these savages, to these heathen, and I, I'm going to preach Jesus to them. And, and the, and, but if you really study the real history of John Wesley, he, he didn't even preach to the Indians. And there's only one portrait of him, and that wasn't made until the, to the early 1900s, late 1880s or something. There, there was an artistic rendering of John Wesley standing preaching to the Indians, and over on the side you'll see a teepee. Well, he came to the eastern Indians and, and Eastern Indians didn't even have teepees. So the artists messed that up. You know, only the Western uh, natives had, had teepees. The first Indian that John uh, Wesley uh, ever met was the chief of the Choctaw uh, tribe. And he was, uh, General Oglethorpe was there and ha was having a meeting with his chief. And there were several people, a lot of people there, uh, history tells us, and John Wesley was invited by Oglethorpe to be in attendance in that meeting. And so he looked at this, this, this old Indian chief, and, and he asked him, he says, uh, uh, and this is a quote, he says, um, he was asked by Wesley what he thought he was made for. He said that to the chief. Do you know what you're made for? Pretty poor, poor grammar on Wesley's part, right? And this is what the chief answered him back. He said, he that is above knows what he has made us for. We know nothing. We are in the dark. But white men know much. And yet white men build great houses as if they are going to live forever. But white men cannot live forever. In a little while, white men will be dust as well as I. That was the first conversation John Wesley had with a Native American. And what John Wesley goes on to say is that he found out that he came to introduce them to God and they already knew who he was and had been worshiping him for centuries. Come on, somebody. And so, 
But yet there were other European evangelists that came that, that tried to convince them that they did not know the real God because they did not speak Christianese. They did not speak the language that, of the European Christian or the Christian denominations or the Christian sects that had, had, had been birthed. And so they would try by force to, to convert these, these people. And they would try to make them deny who they knew was the real God. Now, they didn't use the same names. And so, and, and, and I didn't make, I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, but, but the, the, the Sioux, and, and, and uh, they called him uh, Wakin uh, Tonke. Wakin Tonke. What is that? That's Sioux language, and it means the Great Spirit. Uh, uh, the Blackfoot out in the West, in the, in the Black Hills, they, they called him uh, Apistotokia. Apistotokia, which means the Creator God. The Creator. And, and then the Cheyenne uh, called him the Great Spirit. Uh, the Cherokee, uh, this on my bloodline, they, they called him the Creator. And they all already knew God, and they were praying to Him, and they were worshiping Him. And yeah, many of them had some really messed up views of, of God and what God required. And, and, and they, they had some of that that come in like, well, we have to appease uh, this God. And sometimes they would look at nature and they would look at storms and they would look at hailstorms and stuff that would destruct them. And they would think that, you know, we need to appease this God so maybe he's angry why this is happening. And they got it all messed up. And what was wonderful and great about the Europeans coming is they knew about Jesus. And which the Native Americans did not really know Jesus in that way. And so if we're going to know God really in his fullness and to get the full inheritance of our relationship with our Father is we can only obtain that through the knowledge and knowing and seeing of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and that's what I've, I talked about two Sundays ago. But, but I guess what I'm saying is that they got shocked by the fact that these guys already know God. We, we thought they're just barbaric, uh, you know, heathen people. They called them savages. And, uh, and I'm sure some things that they did compared to, to the European culture was savage-looking to them. But, but God, is, God is involved in revealing himself to all creation because the grace of God has already appeared to all men. And God's grace appeared to them before you got there. <laughs> Amen. And so I remember as a younger preacher uh, in the denomination and folks that I ran with, uh, they looked at something like 12-step recovery and what I mean like AA and the 12 steps and 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 this is used worldwide and it's used in many addictive programs and there are some of you that sitting here have gone through at least some type of of, of 12 step and I won't ask you to identify your hand or anything like that but there but what I got to learn as a pastor in other words I was always kind of told you know that that's just junk or that don't work or and, and, and in other words I was you know it was a negative thing and, and the reason that, that I was told that don't even fool with it because it's negative is because, you know, in its origin and in its, in, in its origination, they didn't name God. They didn't, they didn't name God. They just said to the supreme being or to the, to the, to the, uh, to the power greater than ourselves. And, and they said, well, you know, that's, that's where they screwed up, you know. And because they're saying that it doesn't matter you know, who God is or what God is. That, 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 the people that originated the 12-step recovery program did not have that intent, nor did they have that heart. Um, so Gwen's coming in. Hey, Gwen. 
but Glenn and Cleveland for decades now have uh, administered here Celebrate Recovery, which uses a 12-step uh, recovery you know, program. Many of you have benefited uh, in your life from, from, from 12-step programs. And, and now, you know, when the guys that started it, Bill Wilson and another guy, forget it, in the 1930s, they started the 12-step program. But they didn't invent it. They got it from Oxford University. And Oxford had, had, had the you know, parts of it. And it goes back even further like to people like John Wesley, who came up with a method. And John Wesley's thought was this. If, if we have these practices that, that, that cause people to orient themselves toward God toward God, however they view him in that way. And he learned that by coming to these Native Americans and stuff, that they already knew God. But he said, if we could just get people to orient themselves toward God's love, then, 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 then there's benefit to that. Not that they get the names all right. You're not going to get the, 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 the Cherokee or the Shy. You're not going to get them to change the name of God to your God, the name of, that you call him. But you're still talking to the same God. Now, I'm not saying that there's another mediator between man and God, and that is the one man, Christ Jesus. I, I, I understand that. I'm just trying to get you to say that, 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 that there's benefit. And, and see, people that are addicted, no matter what it is. Now, them guys in the 30s, they started AA, which is, and, they, and, they, and they're the ones that formulated the 12-step recovery. And, and step one says we admit we are powerless over, and they, they put in alcohol, but it doesn't matter what the addiction is. And listen, people that are addicted to anything, now some, everybody in this room is addicted to something. So let's just all be addicts and say amen. Now it might be bluebell ice cream, but you're addicted to something. I had a man in my church at Cornerstone one night, one day, Told me later on in the week when I saw him, he said, I got up the other morning, like 2 o'clock in the morning, and went and got some ice cream. You know what I'm talking about, Brother Keith. And I said, Brother, you got a problem. For you to get out of a warm bed, put on your clothes, get in your car, drive to town, hunt down the ice cream, come back and eat it. 3 o'clock in the morning, you addicted, brother. We don't think nothing about that, and we were joking. And now, you know, hey, knock yourself out, you know. Uh, but just learn to keep some in the freezer. You want to go to town. Uh, but but my, my point is, and I'm not making light of addiction. Please don't mishear what I'm trying to say. I want you to have fun. But being addicted to alcohol or any drug is not fun. Being a sex addict is not fun. It's not, you know, we, we believe the lie. So what the step one is, you just admit that we're powerless over our addiction and that our lives have become unmanageable. And so, the, you know, the, the answer to that, well, if we're powerless, see, if you're going to try to overcome whatever that addiction is with, with you know, with willpower, then, then you're only, <clears throat> you're only going to last as long as you have the strength. But at that moment, and it will come, when you don't have the strength, when you don't have the strength, you will fail, and you will go back to it. <clears throat> the, the, the alcohol, the drugs, the, the illicit sexual, whatever it is, is never the problem. Alcohol is not your problem. Drugs is not your problem. The problem is the brokenness that's in you 
that you're trying to medicate with those things. The alcohol's not your problem. But there's something in you, and it can be accumulative. It cannot, it's, it's, most of the time it is accumulative. It's not one event. You've been hurt, broken, damaged, wounded, abused, and all that piled up together. You're trying to deal with that. And you're trying to medicate that. People in the Bible did that. David did that. Why do you think David liked hot tubs so good? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of them, what's he talking about hot tub? Yeah, there was a woman bathing in a tub, and from David's high position in his palace, he could see her. And I don't believe that was the first time he ever watched her bathe. I believe that was a channel he flicked to often. And finally, he, he done watched that channel so much that he said, go bring me that woman. And because he was king, he could do it. What's David medicating? Well, it, 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 is, it is said that David, I mean, you got to think, why didn't, when, when, there, when Samuel comes to pick the, the, the king of Israel, the next king, why, why didn't David get called to line up with all the brothers? All the other brothers got called to the house. David was left out there taking care of sheep. And history tells us that it's because that David was actually the offspring of another relationship that his dad had. And so he wasn't considered full son. So he wasn't considered. And of course, Samuel went through the lot and said, there's got to be somebody else. And of course, you know the story. They call for David and he's the one. But that hurt David. You don't think it hurts when your daddy and mama don't even recognize you? Don't acknowledge you? Marginalize you? Overlook you? Don't it hurt when you see all everybody else at the Facebook pictures at the family gathering and you wasn't even called? You don't think stuff like that hurts? I wish I could tell you that when you get older, you know, you don't get hurt. But I ain't been hurt since this week. And if you follow me on Facebook, I put a little thing up this week because I was hurting that bad. And I just simply put a statement that I've said for many years that that made me famous. But I just said you can only be hurt to the depth that you care. And the fact that you hurt deeply is proof that you care deeply. You can't hurt me if I don't care about you. I do what I do. You can imagine over all these 40-something years in ministry, I've had people that hated me just because I'm a preacher. And people sit in judgment on me and what I think. They don't even know me. You don't know me unless you hang out with me. You don't even know me. Don't talk about me. You don't know me. You see me on Sunday. You hear me on uh, preaching. But you don't know me. You don't know my heart. You don't know how, what I, you don't know me. And man, it hurts when people, you know, it just hurts. But when somebody don't know me says something nasty and says blah, blah, blue, blah, you know, I just go, delete, Jill, what's for supper? But if I care deeply for you and you attack me, then I don't eat no supper that night. Because my anxiety and all that hits me right here in the gut and I turn nauseated and I'm hurt and I'm wounded and it can put me down. Hurts nasty. Hurts. David even made a comment one time in Scripture. He said, you know, if it had not been my brother, I could have took it. But he said, I got hurt by the one that went to, to, the, to the sanctuary with me. I got hurt by one that we broke bread together. David was saying, man, this right here, y'all, how you, how you overcome this? 
And I've been hurt by some, I've had so many people as a pastor, you know, trying, and they were sincere when they said it. But I've had people make these grandiose, you know, statements of commitment to me. You know, on the way I'll do this, and, and it'll just, I won't you go through it. They'll fill in the blank of, you know, how dedicated they're going to be, and, and they're going to be there with me under my ministry the day I die. <clears throat> and they've just about all gone. They're just about all gone. And I'm sitting there preaching to people like Keith that knows the background stories of most of every one of those. Boy, you've been a faithful son. Even when you didn't like me, you still loved me. <laughs> and that's the truth. He said, well, you think there were ever a time that you, you don't like somebody? Yeah, you can not like them for a little bit, but still love them forever. And so one of the things that you, how you overcome this powerlessness is you just got to surrender to a God that's already overcome all sin. And, and, and so step two is they came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. That's step two. And then step three is make a decision to turn our will and our lives to the, over to the care of God as we understand him. See, just because you say the right names don't mean that you ain't got a messed up God. Because I know a lot of Christians that the God that they try to present to me, preach about, talk about, I don't believe in their God. I'm an atheist concerning their God. And even though they're saying Christian language and Christian uh, uh, terminology, I, but I don't believe in a God that's ret uh, uh, retributive, that's uh, punitive, that's punishing, that's sadistic, that's going to pay you back, that's going to get you. I, I don't believe in that God. But that's the God they believe in, and, and, and they believe in a God that's going to torture them. For, I mean, you know, have at it. God bless you. I don't believe in your God. Because the God I pray to is not that God. And, and, and the God that I get my view from is Jesus. Because Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. So unless you can, unless you can point it to me in Jesus, then I don't, I, don't, I don't buy it. I don't swallow it. I don't accept it. There'll be a ton of stuff that I can't argue with you about, and I can't explain. Some of those things may even be found in your Bible. But the, but the God that I get my image from God from is Jesus Christ. And if you can't prove it to me in Jesus and see it in Him, so when I hear preachers preaching that God sends tornadoes to towns to pay them back because they got uh, strip clubs, then I don't believe in that God. Because Jesus never sent a storm anywhere. Even to a town that rejected him and said, don't come to our town, we don't want to hear nothing you got to say. And John's standing out there at the city limit sign saying, let's burn this place to the dirt. And Jesus is like, whoa, John, you don't even know what kind of spirit, brother, you in. I didn't come to kill people, I came to save them. If Jesus was going to send a storm, he'd have sent it to that town. He don't do that. God's not a killer. God didn't say to Adam, even the day you eat of the tree, that day I shall kill thee. He said, even the day you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's the day that you die. God ain't behind it. God sure killed a bunch of people in the flood. God didn't kill any of them people. They, every one of them could have been saved. They had a hundred plus years to build boats if they wanted to build them. They could build a fleet of arks. God had to baptize a world that had become in, in, uninhabitable. 
When the Bible says God created the world and it was very good, it, it, literally in Hebrew, the world was inhabitable. It was a good place to live and have life. And then he said, when God looked again, it grieved his heart that he had made man because the earth had become uninhabitable. And, and lest we forget, the Messiah is coming through that earthly lineage. And God said, this world is full of violence. We, don't even, we can't even imagine the condition of the world. And God saved the world by sending the flood. God's about saving. God didn't do that because he was angry. We, we, got this, we got so much weird stuff about God. We, we say like, well, you know, the first time Jesus came, he came meek and mild, he little, you, know, you know, riding on a baby donkey, but when he comes back next time, he's going to kick butt and take names. He's coming in on them. I'm telling you, that's the average Christian's view of the second coming of the Lord, that Jesus is coming back. By God, he's just to straighten. He's going to kill off some people and just straighten everything out. You don't even know him. You don't even know him. It's ridiculous. But see, you, you surrender your life to the care, not the control of a God. But you can't surrender to a God that you don't think loves you. Can you surrender to anybody that you don't think loves you? Isn't it easier to surrender? See, God's not going. We don't raise our hands because we're getting jacked up in a robbery. God's not putting a pistol to your head and says, praise me. That's not the picture. We're, we surrender to a loving God who loves and cares for us. And, and so what, what you see, you know, one of the things, and I, I'm not going through the step. I guess I am to a degree. But step nine of that 12-step program, see, the, the method part of this, it helps people to orient themselves toward grace instead of hide from it. And it surrounds you sometimes with people that don't flinch when you tell them your story. Do you know that we need people that will not flinch when you tell them you're nasty? I had a man in my office in this church building years ago, many years ago, that I had known, he had struggled in so many years. And, and, uh, and, and he was suicidal. And I was called to, to, to come to the church. And another brother went and got him out of a hotel room and brought him to me. I'm not the Savior, but he wanted, you know, come see pastor. He sat in my office, so disheveled, so looked like he'd been you know, drug through the knot hole backwards, as they say in the country. And just, it just looked terrible physically. And, uh, and, and I'm just there to listen. And, and uh, he, he said, Pastor, he said, you know a lot about my junk. And you, you've met with me a lot over the years. But I've never been totally honest with you. I've never told you the real me. And I want to tell you the real me. And buddy, he unloaded the wagon. But I've been doing this a while. I'm pretty shockproof, I think. But I mean, he throwed out some nasty. He throwed it out. And when he got through, this was not planned. This ain't, I ain't got a little procedure book or I looked at him, and he, and he cried through it all, and, and that probably took him 20 minutes to get it all out, and it was pretty bad as far as 
morality standards, it was, it was bad. And even in some Christian circles, they would say he was beyond forgiveness. And they would try to use Scripture to say, you're, you know, you're, you're a reprobate, you're, you're damned. Nobody's damned. And when he got through, I looked at him, and I had uh, Pastor Martin in my office with me when all of this occurred. He was by my side. He's the one that went and got the guy from the hotel. And I looked at him, and I said, and he had his face down. And I said, I told this man, I said, look at me. And he, he raised up, and I pointed, and I said, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are still as righteous before God as Jesus is. And you feel the Holy Spirit right now on you as I have just said that statement. That's not air conditioning causing those goosebumps. How many of you feel that presence? That's the Holy Spirit's presence right now. Witnessing what I'm saying is true and proper and right. Because your righteousness does not come, nor does it originate with you, nor from your behavior. But it originates as a gift from your Father. And Paul called it the gift of righteousness. And so God took, it's the great exchange at the cross. And God took your heaviness, and God took your sin, and he gave you righteousness. He, 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 gave, he, he took your ashes, and he gave you joy. And that's why I want you to see Jesus at the cross. But don't see him hanging there, helpless and hopeless. But see him standing in front of it, victorious. And, and, and overcoming that cross for, 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 for our sake. And so... One of the things, you know, I said, and I said to that guy, and he was so shocked by what I said. And I didn't say it for shock value. I said it for truth. Because truth is what makes you free. And later, months later, and yes, we, we, we began, to, we, 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 we have help. And so he began to, to do uh, counseling. And, and he'd come week after week and month after month for counseling. And he was faithful to do that. And I would meet with him. I wasn't doing the counseling personally, but uh, we have people that would do it. And, 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 and we were using, at that time, uh, what we call theophostic. And theo meaning God, phostic means light. And so if you can bring God's light to places that are dark, it's the truth that makes people free. And so, so that's, what, that's what we were doing. And I met with him uh, uh, several months later. And, he, and in that meeting, he said to me, he said, I want you to know something, Pastor. The day that you said that to me, I was at my absolute worst. And I honestly want to tell you that I didn't believe one word of what you said. I did not believe I was righteous. How could I be? After all, I just told you I did. But he said, now I do. And it doesn't mean that this guy's done everything perfect since then. But I do say this, things got changed. Um... Now, what, one of the, the steps of the 12-step recovery is that step nine says make direct amends to such people whenever possible. And in other words, amends for what you've done wrong to them, except when to do so would injure them or others or it's not safe for you or for them. And, and so, you know, where do they get that from? And, and let me say something. So I want you to understand as I try to bring this, you know, sum this up here. See, when you get, I was preached an unrealistic 
forgiveness. In other words, when you, I, people will go over in the red letters and they'll quote where if you don't forgive your brother their trespasses, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you of your trespasses. And that was true, and Jesus said it, but he was preaching the law to those under the law. And the point was to make them realize that they can't live that and they have to have a Savior. God's forgiveness is not conditional upon what you do because that would make you the Savior, and he is. Now, after the cross, everything changes and nobody preaches that message again. And the Apostle Paul talks about forgiveness, but he said we ought to forgive others. But I want to say something that's going to sound like it's, that I'm wrong, and, and it's okay. And, and I could be. And I just, I could be. I don't think I am. I have done all I could do to search it out to make sure I'm not wrong. I never want to say anything glibly or without thought. or, or you know, I want to know I'm, I'm, I'm biblically accurate. But there's not any verses that say that you're to go to somebody and ask them to forgive you. There's not any verse in the whole New Testament that tells you that you're supposed to go to somebody that, that, that you've hurt and ask them to forgive you. It's not in there. And how dare you do that? Now imagine a person that you have hurt, and we've all hurt people, and we've been hurt by people. But imagine a person that you've hurt, and you go to them, and you're, you're doing what? You're going to ask them to forgive you. You've molested them, you abused them, you stole from them, whatever it is. You're going to ask them to forgive you? Do you realize that you're there asking to extract something else from them in spite of all that you've already extracted and the damage you've done to them? You don't go to somebody you've hurt and ask them to give you a gift. And, you, and you're going there most of the time and you're asking them to forgive you so that you'll feel better. Not for, it's not for their benefit. I know in church before, I've had people come and say, well, brother, I just want to ask you to forgive me. I mean, I, I got no clue what they're even talking about. Well, yeah, I, I said this about you. I did this, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, and, and, and I just want you to forgive me. And I go, well, you know, I forgive you. And then I leave, and they leave feeling good, and I go home, and I'm in a ditch. Because, because they just loaded me down with poison. The Bible says, it don't tell you to do that. It don't tell you to do that. How are you going to go to somebody you hurt and you're still trying to extract a gift? Forgiveness is a gift. You, you don't do that. You make amends. Well, there's a big difference between forgiveness and making amends. Now, is amends in the Scripture? There's no verse that says, thou shalt make amends. But we see it patterned in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus made amends. Remember that, remember that guy? Now, it's, the Bible says he is a, not only is he a tax collector, he's a Jew that's turned against his own people. He's collecting taxes. The Bible says he is the chief tax collector. And he's rich. And it says in the Bible, he is rich. He has made his money off the back of his people who are being dominated by Roman authority. And I'm telling you, the Jews hate him. They hate him worse than you can imagine. They hate this guy. And this guy has used extortion and all kind of stuff to get his money. And, but he hears about this man named Jesus. He, he just wants to see him. And he's a man of short stature. He climbs up a sycamore tree. And, and Jesus walks right under that tree, stomps, looks up, and says, uh, Zacchaeus, come down. Uh, you know, I, I must uh, uh, you know, go to your house with you today and, and have a meal with you. And boy, they were blown away. They said, this man keeps company with sinners. It just it aggravated him. As if they were not sinners. <laughs> you see how people talk? Jesus goes to his house. He has an encounter with the, the grace of God. Jesus is the grace of God personified. 
He has an encounter with the grace of God. And when he has that encounter with the grace of God, then he responds to it. He's not trying to pay God back. He responds to that grace. And what Zacchaeus says is, uh, uh, he said, Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. Half. And and if I've taken anything by extortion, false accusation, I restore it fourfold. So he did a calculation in his own mind. Why, why did he do this? He is, he is attempting to make amends. And I believe that Zacchaeus was prompted by the Holy Spirit to do so. So he's looked at the damage that he's done to these people, and he's trying to make uh, amends. And Jesus replies to that and says, today salvation is coming to this house. He said, you're, you're still a son of Abraham. See, he didn't consider himself even a son of Abraham anymore. Jesus said, you're still a son of Abraham. And he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save which is lost. So, so Zacchaeus, notice what he don't do. He don't blame anybody. See, when you, go, when you hurt people, don't, don't, don't do that game. Oh, well, I was going through a rough time. You know, the reason I did this to you is because you did that. Or I had it hard. Or I lost my job. Don't, don't do all that. Don't, just own it. Just own it. Zacchaeus didn't blame anybody. Zacchaeus didn't say, well, I was going through a rough time. You know, these Romans was on me. He, he didn't do that. He just, he just took ownership of what he had done. Uh, listen, all you can do is clean your side of the street. You hear what I'm saying? You can't clean the other side of the street. Just clean your side. And, 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 and so he, Zacchaeus just owned it. And Because, and, see, amends, my amends, if I try to amend, that's a gift. I'm not, I'm not asking for something. I'm giving something. And, 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 but sometimes the people that you've hurt are dead. Or sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes the, the law says you can't get near them or whatever. I mean, I've, I've seen some, I don't want to, but sometimes you just can't, you can't do it to the person. You can't, but you know you can still make amends. Do you know you can still make amends? Because you live your amends. You live your life in such a way that, that, that you bring healing and hope and, and, and to, to this world. You're, you're living your amends. You're just living it out. And you're not asking somebody for something. And man, when you get hurt, you know, and sometimes I didn't realize that when I was a young guy and I'd just gotten out of high school and I was working at this place and a place where we made, the company made shirts. I worked in the shipping department, but they made shirts, you know. And it was owned by Jews, which just happened to be the story. And I had the guy that was the head of the shipping, you know, I mean, it, anyway, I won't get into all the nasty, but they broke open a case of uh, shirts one day, and, uh, and sometimes that would happen. They'd fall off the semi, we're trying to load them and stuff. And so they just started saying, they said, well, you know, they started passing out shirts to everybody. So we're going to keep these. You could buy, when I worked there, you could buy that shirt, that final shirt for $3. $3. That was our employee. We could buy all we wanted for $3. So... I was always, you know, taught you don't be stealing. You don't steal nothing. And it was out of fear. Boy, I know what Paul G. would do if I ever stole a piece of candy, you know. So I didn't, we didn't steal. But I didn't want to look like a wimp in front of all these other guys in the ship. So I said, I'll take one shirt. So I took a shirt. One shirt. I felt like I'd robbed a bank. I took that shirt and I stuck it up under the seat of my car and I drove out. I just expecting the police to, you know, catch me riding dirty. You know what I'm talking about? Just pull me over and. And, and, and 
and that thing bothered me. But after a while, I kind of just got past it. And then, you know, I come back to, to, to the Lord uh, as a 19-year-old teenager, and, and I'm married now, and, 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 and it came to me, uh, and not out of guilt or punishment or retribution, but I felt like, you know, the Holy Spirit said, you, you need to make amends for that. And I don't even work there no more. Make amends. And besides that, the guy that's over the office, over the finances, is a member of my church. And sets a few pews above me, you know, up the, and, and I got to look at the back of his head. And, and so I'm like, I didn't want him to find out that I had stole the shirt there when I worked there. Because I'm, I'm on the pastor's council. It would be like elders. I was a young guy. They, they voted me in. Our church voted. They voted me in. That was dumb on their part, wasn't it? But I was in there. I'm like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm like an elder. And I, I can't be admitting to no stealing. <laughs> and, that, and I just tried to shove it off. Well, that, I, I felt just prompted to do it. And I finally said, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to make this right. And so, uh, so I went to the, one of the Jewish owners of the business who we knew from when I worked there that did not believe in you know, Jesus like we do, as far as they believe that he existed, but not as the Savior. They're still under the old Orthodox five books of Moses deal. So I go to this Jewish man, and he's like, well, hey, good to see you. How you been doing? And I haven't seen him in years, you know. And I'm there all broken up, and I just said, I, I want to tell you something. When I used to, when I worked for y'all years ago here, I, I stole a shirt, and I want to make it right. He looked at me like he was, like I was just, what? And I said, he said, how many? I remember, because he talked real fast, you know, he was like this kind of guy, you know, when I worked for him. He was like, how many, how, many, how, many did you get? how many did you get, baby? How many did you take? That's what he said to me. I said, just, just one. He said, just one? He said, don't worry about it. I said, no, I, I, I got to make it right. I want to I pay you for it. And I had a check wrote for $20 made, made out to the company. And he, he said, and I said, I want to give you this check, and if you'll just please take it. And I, I said, I, I, just, I need to make this right. And he said, well, don't give it to me, but go see. And he told me this other Jewish guy. So then I go see him. Same story. Oh, don't worry about it. Ah, uh, you know, what are under the bridge? And, he, and I said, no, I've got to make it right. So now I've done witness to two Jews about Jesus. See, that was the real deal. I thought it was about me. I didn't have enough sense to know that God's just splashing grace all over these people. Great. Because, see, my thought is, I didn't see it then. They, they had to lay in their bed that night. And think about what happened to them that day. Here is a guy that ain't worked here in five years, and he's standing there with a check in his hand trying to pay us for a $3 flannel shirt. Now, what would make a guy do that? Maybe Jesus is real. Maybe there is something. I don't know what does. So then the other guy says, well, you got to go see Tyrone. That's the member of the church. That's the man that sits three people. So now I got to go to Brother Tyrone. And I have to confess my sins and make amends. And I said, Tyrone, when I worked here, and he worked there when I worked here, he's the office manager. I said, I stole a shirt. And I was so, I said, I stole a shirt. And I tried to give it, you know, and, I took, and they told me I had to give it to you. And I said, here's the check. Now, by this time, I'm crying. Because I have been run through the ringer. 
And I handed him a check for $20. And, and, and he said, don't worry. He said, don't worry. And I said, no, I, I want, please cash the check. I need to do this. So he took the check. And he said, okay, we'll do it. And, uh, but when I left out of there, I felt so good. You know, because I thought it was about me, but it wasn't about me. It was bigger than me. And making amends is not about just you. I mean, yeah, we're, we're amending what we did, and Zacchaeus modeled that for us. And, and maybe there is a way that you can do that, but, and, I, and I don't mean to saddle you with anything or bring back any memory of something that's, you know, as they say, water under the bridge kind of deal. But I'm simply saying that, that, that these guys figured out, they, they tapped into something with this. And as a pastor, when I first started, I was critical of this because they said the creator, the supreme being, the power from above. Listen, I found out this about Father God, that it, even the slightest turn towards him, he will run to rescue you. He will come after you. It's like the parable of the, uh, the prodigal son. As soon as that son made the slightest turn toward home, Papa got off the porch and run after him. And throwed his arms around him and, and, just, and, and, and didn't condemn him and didn't remind him of his sin, didn't want to talk to him about his sin. And the son wants to, wants to you know, pay him back. Grace ain't payment. Grace is free. Grace is gift. And so the father says, we not, this ain't about payment. He says, we're fit to have a party. So what does God do with the roughest sinner that spent all this money? and, and, and all? He said, let's have a party. Because you was dead, you know, but now you're alive. And it wasn't mean you were dead to him. It means he was living in death. He was, li he was living in that. And so I want you to know that that's the heart of God to you. Surrender your life. Could, could you not surrender your life to the care? Not control, but to the care of a God who loves you that much? If you want to see how God is, read the story of the prodigal son. That's who God is. And even the religious brother that says, I ain't going in that party. I've been here and I've worked all my life and I've paid my tithes and I've been to church. Now. And it says, because he refused to go in. I love this verse. And it said, the father went out. <laughs> and he was out and he puts his arm around and says, son, come, come on into the party. What you doing out here missing all this? We done killed the fatted calf. See, killing the fatted calf had nothing to do with appeasement. Those, 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 those feasts of the Lord that those Jews did in the Old Covenant, it's, you're not, they're not trying to appease an angry God. All those feasts are parties. The Feast of Tabernacles is a party. It's a party. It's like, let's get our party on. And so, 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 so that the killing of the fatted calf, does not let's, let's kill this animal and let's see if we can appease the wrath of... It's got nothing to do with that. We don't even understand... We don't even understand this. And the Christians have still got this. We had to offer blood and appease. Jesus' death on the cross was not appeasing his angry father. Jesus submitted to the anger of people and the wrath of men. And, their, 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 and it says over and over in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and numerous times when those apostles preached, they preached to those Jews and they said this statement, you murdered him, but God forgives you. You murdered him. You murdered the gift of life. You murdered him. And how did he respond to your torture and your murder? He says, I forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what he did. And he turned that thing around. And he walked into death and he destroyed death by death. That's what, that's what he did. Come on, somebody. That's what he did. 
And see, when, when, and, and that's when, when you, that's what I told you, and you read Psalm 23, and the Lord shall you know, provide me a, a, a table in the presence of my enemies. Most Christians read that, and I used to. I would read that like, yeah, that'll show them. I got a banquet table, and y'all my enemies, and I'm eating. Take that. <clears throat> you know it's true. That's not, what, what, Psalm 23. The Lord shall provide spread a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Why do you think he does that? So you can gloat? So you can say, I love you, I don't like them? What did Jesus tell us that you do when you're enemy, to the enemy? What did Paul teach us to do with your enemies? He said, if they're hungry, what do you do for them? You feed them. So the reason that God's give you a table, and that table's more than grits and groceries and roast beef and chicken, that, that table's grace. And God spread that table with grace, and you got an abundance of grace. And God's saying, give that to them. You've been given mercy, now show mercy. You've been given forgiveness, now forgive them. Even as God in Christ has forgiven you of your sin. Forgive them. Forgive them. But they're wrong. Forgive them. Give them. You, and it says, by, but when your enemy is hungry, you feed them. When they're thirsty, give them drink. And by doing so, you heap coals of fire upon their heads. Yeah, I used to read that like, yeah, that's getting them. That's a little taste of hell. What's coming for y'all? Come on, y'all. I ain't by myself. Don't look at me like But when he says, Paul said, do it. And when you, when, you're, when you feed your enemy and when you give them drink, you heap coals of fire. What is the fire? Our God is a consuming fire. Says it three times in the New Testament. Our God is a consuming fire. And God burns out the wood, the hay, and the stubble. We're all going to pass through and into that fire at the end of this thing. And in all that wood and the hay and the stubble and the stuff we built our lives on, the stuff we trusted in, and all those fears and all those anxieties, it's like, it's like pass, passing through a, you know, a machine and you've got, you know, you got cancer in your body and it's ripping your body apart. And, and there's the wrath of, uh, of your creator against that. And, and, and if there was a machine, they would pass you through the radiation or the cobalt, they used to call it, through that machine. And it would burn out the bad cancer cells, but it would spare you. And, and if everything that's against life and everything that's against living and, and everything that's precious would be, the, the, the Father would have wrath against that because it's taken you, your life is taking you from, from love. And he would burn that out of you. That's what, that's what Papa's going to do. He's gonna be, and so when you do that, what, their, what, your, what, what your kindness, you're feeding the enemy, it burns out their hatred. How are you going to hate somebody to give you something to eat? How are you going to hate somebody that, that when you're thirsty, they gave you drink? You're not trying to buy nothing from them. You're, you're, you're letting them feel that, 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 that fire that's consuming that wrath and racism and anger, and whatever it is in them. And you're an instrument of that. You're an instrument of that. I don't really pray like, oh, God, use me, because God don't use people. I'm sorry we use that terminology, but he don't. Do you want somebody to use you? Well, you know, this person really uses me. That's a negative in this world, right? You don't want to be used. God's not going to use you like that, but you can be an instrument of his grace. I'm not trying to play words. I just want you to know God's not a user. God's not an abuser. God don't abandon people. Even when they do their worst, he doesn't abandon them. And so now, years ago, I learned to appreciate the 12-step program. Now, a lot of people have Christianized it, and that's fine. Sometimes I've read where, you know, the 12-step program, and they've, now it's under the Christian banner, and they've actually made it worse than it was in this origin because they religiousized it or they reintroduced shame or guilt back into it. That they have departed when they do that. 
Don't be afraid because it says that you submit to the higher power. God is not intimidated. He knows he's the higher power. And it may be like the, the, the Cherokee. They may call him by a different name, but God will always answer when one of his children turns towards him. Can you say amen? I love the fire out of y'all. Y'all know that, don't you? Everybody good? All right, I want you to stand to your feet. Pastor Callaway and my elders that are here, uh, y'all come up here with Jennifer. I'm going to meet y'all there in just a second. We're going to pray for her. I want to lay hands on her, like the Bible says. The elders lay hands on them, and they recover. And we're believing for absolute total recovery for her. And Jennifer, we love you so much. Thank you for just punching the devil in the face by coming and showing him you can still come to church anyway. Uh, but listen, I want to say this to you. We're here to pray. After we pray for her, then we'll be back here if, if you want prayer for any reason. It could be physical, spirit. It, it doesn't matter. We believe in the power of prayer because we believe in our Father. We believe in his love for you. If you're going through some type of addiction, there's hope for you. But it's not in your willpower. It's not in your strength. You do what that says. You disclaim you're powerless against it. But Jesus has been victorious over all. And so now your, your, your freedom lies and relies in and through him. As you surrender to his care, not control, he won't control you, he won't use you, but he absolutely cares for you, and he will lead and guide you in the truth that will make you free. And it may take some counseling, and it may take some steps, and, and, but you'll, you'll go through the process. I had a note, it was my wife, and the, and the person, the lady could be here. And I won't identify who it is, but I gave you the note while I go stick in your purse. And it was laying on my desk when I walked in my office. And, and she talked about being set free right here. Just hand me the note. I won't read the specific parts of this, her business. Uh, thank you, you good-looking hunk of woman, you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm absolutely in love with her. Uh, thank you for being here for the church. Lives are being saved. I'm encouraged to live a good life without drugs and alcohol. I just want to say thank you. I've been through this temptation of living in anxiety. Thank you for your prayers. We whipped it now. <laughs> I can encourage others now. I don't know who, I mean, I know the name that was on here and all. And forgive me for not knowing everybody by face and name. I'm, I'm weak in that area. Just touch my heart. <laughs> Especially in light of what I was going to talk about today. And it was like Papa saying, go son, go. These people that, that I love that are addicted to drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. I love them. And if they will just simply turn and orient themselves towards my grace, towards me, all they're going to find is mercy, love, forgiveness, and restoration. Could you not surrender to him if that was really if he's half as good as I claim he is, could you not surrender to that type of God? Surrender your life to him. You will overcome your drug addiction. You will overcome it. 
I am so thankful for people like Pastor Keith and the House of Grace and these precious men that he has ministered to all these many years. So many of them are living their lives. Several of them still eat, you know, communicate with me. And they're out living their life. They're free. But he calls you, you let them through these steps. You let them through recovery, through Jesus. I'm so thankful for that. I've seen it with my own eyes. And so many, uh, all the other programs that are around in this area. I mean, I'm so thankful for it. And I used to be like a negative. Hey, hey, you don't want to go to that. You need to go to church. Man, I'm all a fan for anybody and anything that will lead you to Papa that will set you free. Amen? And I thank God for AA. I thank God for overeaters and all. I thank God for whatever, whatever it is. And I'm not worshiping no 12-step nothing. I'm just saying when you orient yourself to these things and you can talk to somebody and you can, you can speak it out to God in the presence of a person who loves God and loves you and who will not sit in judgment on you and who will not flinch no matter how nasty your story is because grace don't flinch at sin. It just says you're still righteous, you're forgiven, you're loved, and in Christ you're free. Amen. So, Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us Jesus who is grace in the flesh, in person, personified grace and truth full of grace and truth thank you for that truth that sets us free thank you that grace that cries out for nothing but mercy and forgiveness thank you for jesus i pray in jesus name amen all right we're gonna pray for jennifer and y'all y'all dismiss we love you if you want prayer come up here and we'll i'll meet you back here in just a second